0: Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric.
1: And I'm Johanna.
0: On today's show, we're going to talk about a movie called The Man Who Haunted Himself.
1: I finally finished the audiobook version of the sequel to Ready Player One, which, as you can guess, is called Ready Player Two. I'd attempted... To read it in physical book form and couldn't make progress, so I got an audio tape for a long car ride, and the car rides that I usually take are six hours to go visit my parents, and I'd always end up stopping at the same point and just not finding the will to keep going. And so this time around, last car trip, I was determined, like, okay, I'm going to pick up where I left off, even if I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to finish this fucking book (laughs) And it's not as good as Ready Player One, but a lot of it is about AI technology that when I started trying to read or listen to this a few years ago was still like, oh, that's like sci-fi so far in the future. It doesn't even seem relevant, and now it is extremely relevant. So if for whatever reason you were holding back from Checking out Ready Player Two if you loved the first one, if you loved Ready Player One. It's just like it in the sense of it's filled with 80s pop culture references to everything from Lord of the Rings, Dungeons and Dragons, John Hughes movies. So there's, there's a lot to love in the sequel and I recommend it.
0: I have been buying individual issues of comics again, which I haven't done in a long time for a number of reasons. I have just transitioned, like many people, over to reading graphic novels for a bunch of reasons. One, it's easier to get the whole story arc all at once. Two, comic book shops are increasingly rare these days. And then I usually don't pick up stuff where I don't know the creators. You know, a lot of people pick stuff up based on characters. So I don't know who the creators of this one was. It was recommended to me by the comic shop owner, and it was the first issue of Captain Marvel. And I put air quotes around first issue because the way that Marvel works things nowadays is that there's always a first issue. There's (laughs) two running number tallies. One is a big number one to let you know it's the start of a new story arc. And then there's the legacy number below that that lets you know where it is in the continuity so that people know where they can jump on. Now, I haven't worried about that because I only read graphic novels. But anyway, it was Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel has long been associated with the X-Men. And the x Men's kind of taken a back seat at Marvel for a long time in the comics because everything's driven by the movies now and they were waiting until the license came back to Marvel. If you remember, for a while, they were trying to push... In humans instead of mutants, you know, because they didn't have the, they couldn't even say the word mutant because mutant went along with the X Men franchise. So only in the X Men movies or the Deadpool movies did you hear the word mutant. Well, now it's coming back under their umbrella. I predict we're going to see an X Men reboot soon on the big screen by Marvel themselves. What was interesting about this was that. The villains of the piece are the Brood, who longtime X Men readers should be familiar with. It's Marvel's version of the Xenomorph Aliens. That was my jumping on point for reading X Men back when I was like 12 years old. They were fighting against the Brood. So it's like a nice place to jump back in. I thought it was really well done. And I won't say that about all comics like I, at the same time I picked up Hellcat and I hated Hellcat. <laughs> Hellcat number 1. If you remember Hellcat was in Jessica Jones. Hellcat was in Jessica Jones. Oh, that's right. The artwork was not great and she was not at all pretty and my superheroes don't have to be pretty except Hellcat because she is a model. It's I think the only Marvel comic superhero comic that's ever crossed over with Millie the model which was a girls' comic <laughs> they launched in the 1960s. Not superhero at all. But if you remember in the in the show, she was like an actress or a model or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of an important part. Also, it got way into supernatural elements that like I just don't... I like my... I like Hellcat as a street-level hero. Like mm-hmm. she was in Jessica Jones, like a martial artist. She's always been a B-lister, but she's always been kind of a favorite of mine. So I was disappointed. So... Thumbs down on Hellcat, thumbs up on Captain Marvel. Nice. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Now that uh, we went into a long, twisted thing on current Marvel comics, let's get into what we're talking about today. We have been watching a 60s TV show, The Saint, starring Roger Moore. That concluded in 1969 after episode six Uh, The movie we're talking about today, The Man Who Haunted Himself, came out in 1970. So I'd like to cover a little bit about what went on in between. February 9th, 1969, the final episode of The Saint airs. It's called The World Beater. It's centered around auto racing and features a number of sports cars, the pre-opening credits scene has Roger Morris, Simon Templar test driving a Marcos 1600 GT, which is has been sabotaged, and he gets into an auto accident. And that's the start of that episode, the final episode of The Saint. March 12th, Paul McCartney married Linda Eastman. And shortly thereafter, John Lennon and Yoko Ono are married at Gibraltar. April 24th, the British Leyland Motor Corporation introduces the Austin Maxi, Britain's first production hatchback car.
1: Mm.
0: May 2nd, the ocean liner Queen Elizabeth II begins her maiden voyage from Southampton to New York City. The ship employs a breakthrough in marine technology. It's the first private use of satellite global positioning system. July 1st. John Lennon, Yoko Ono, and family get into an auto accident in Scotland after crashing the Apple Records staff car, a British Leyland Austin Maxi. <laughs> That's just a few little things. Now, I don't know when The Man Who Haunted Himself premiered. I assume it had a London premiere date. I've seen online the date February 18th of 1970, but I've also seen Birmingham listed as the premiere in July, July 18th of 1970. So I'm going to turn it over to you and find out what, was, what went on with this and when did it actually come out.
1: So I suspect the July 18th date is the correct one only because uh, the film was very cheap to make uh, apparently, they had a 200,000 pound budget, which is practically nothing. A lot of the actors decided to forego their you know, heftier salaries. They really believed in the project, and so they were willing to make the film on a budget. But then the PR department played that up a little bit too much. They're like, this film costs practically nothing. <laughs> Go see it. It's <laughs> probably good, <laughs> was sort of their marketing strategy. So Roger Moore blamed that as one of the factors for the film's lack of commercial success. But the other two factors were that it released at the same time as two other projects from EMI Studios. So there are three films that were in production at the time, all released back to back to back. And it happened to coincide with a trifecta of the World Cup, a general election, and a heat wave. Heat wave could have been in February, but... Makes the July timing sound pretty promising.
0: I was skeptical about the February date.
1: So, um, yeah, they they didn't put a ton of money behind this, but they had some interesting talent. The film was written and directed by Basil Dearden. That's a British name if I ever heard one. (laughs) Who was a theater and film director and, frankly, not very successful and not very well known. I haven't seen any of his other films but I did take a look at his filmography and I confess that I am rather intrigued by a couple of them so I haven't seen these films but I'm going to tell you about them in case you want to find out more about Basil Dearden. He made a film in 1961 called Victim which was a neo-noir suspense film and it was the first British film to explicitly name homosexuality and deal with it in a sympathetic way. It was, of course, very controversial, but was later considered an acclaimed film and is now a classic, albeit one I had never heard of. In 1964, he made a film called Woman of Straw, starring Sean Connery, a crime thriller complete with a tyrannical old tycoon, that man's gullible nurse-turned-wife, and a scheming nephew, played by Connery, executing an inheritance murder plot. The tagline of the film is, it's so easy to set fire to a woman of straw, which I don't know (laughs) what that means, (laughs) but it's on the poster. Clearly, it's something maybe we should know. It's an innuendo. Who knows? But it's so easy to set fire to a woman of straw. Um, In 1966, uh, Dearden made Khartoum, which is an epic British war film set in the 1880s starring Charlton Heston as a British general defending the Sudanese city of Khartoum, laid siege by the modest army led by a character, Mohammed Ahmed, played by Laurence Olivier. So just trying to picture Char- Charlton Heston playing a Brit and Laurence Olivier playing someone of Sudanese descent, color me intrigued. <laughs> Definitely want to see how Yay. that plays out.
0: I can't even, yeah, okay.
1: Anyway, um, this film, The Man Who Haunted Himself, 1970, was Dearden's last feature film he made before dying in a car accident. Catching on a theme here, dear listeners.
0: So, do you know anything about the car accident?
1: Um, No. Okay,
0: so it was on March 23rd, 1971, so barely, not even a year later. On the M4 near Heathrow, the same stretch of road where we're about to talk about it, in the film, the initial car crash happens. Yikes. (laughs) So, yeah, if you pay attention, uh, it's the M4. Very interesting.
1: It was a short story. It was later expanded to a novel. It was then produced as a 30-minute short film as part of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, so there was a lot going into it, but ended up being a box office flop. Despite this, Roger Moore said his role in the film was his favorite of all the films he was in. He said, The only way I've had to extend myself before was to carry on being charming in a movie. This was the first picture for 11 years in which I've had to show any emotion I'm grateful for the chance to show that saintliness is not my only stock in trade. So say what you will about the critical merits or otherwise of the film, but it's nice to know that Roger had a good time.
0: Okay, so let's jump into this. There's very little dialogue in the first 10 minutes. He's a businessman who leaves his office and gets on the highway
1: you know, one of the interesting visual touches they do with the film is that he's driving a very boring-looking corporate kind of car, and we he's see... He's driving a, a Rover. He's Yes, he's driving a Rover, and then we see the, I, I guess it's the Lamborghini Islero GTS. 400S. Yes, this beautiful sports car superimposed over it as he starts to rev the engine, so we... We sort of have a sense that there is some supernatural something going on, or it's in his imagination. We don't know. But imagining that he's in the sports car instead of in the the Rover.
0: Now, there are fans of the Rover P5B. All I can say is I've only driven a Rover once, and I was in England and was driving up to the Lake District from London. And – Absolutely everything on the car broke. (laughs) Like, I think the windshield wipers got stuck on at one point. Like, Mm -hmm. everything. So, I do not recommend a Rover. However, I would love to have the silver Lamborghini Islero 400S, which had a V12 engine. I have driven a car with a V8 engine. I used to have a Ford Mustang, but I have never driven a car with a V12
1: engine. (coughs) (laughs) <laughs> only
0: 100 were made.
1: Yeah, and only five that had the right-hand drive versions, the British steering wheel versions. So, so this car was very special. Um, it was sold at auction in 2010 for 106,000 pounds.
0: 296,800 is the number I have.
1: Oh, really? I have. In what I have, what
0: year were you saying?
1: That was its first time it went to auction. 2000. In 2010. Oh. oh yeah, yeah. yeah yes. no.
0: I'm talking 2020.
1: Yeah, 2020. Uh, 296,800 including fees.
0: <laughs> March 7th. So literally, like a week or two before the pandemic lockdown, someone bought a Lamborghini. Now just think about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That would be a fun way to spend the pandemic. You know, just like joyriding where no one else is on the roads.
0: Yeah, I guess that would be kind of I mean, insofar
1: as any of us had, quote-unquote, fun during the
0: pandemic. This uh, information, by the way, comes from Historic's Auctioneers. So it superimposes this car over his car from time to time. But eventually, for reasons we're not quite sure, he is just driving way faster than he needs to, darting in and out between cars. Eventually, a car that he's tailgating pulls out from in front of him, and there's a construction site right there. He goes through the barricades and crashes. He is in the operating room where he has a pulse that eventually flatlines and then temporarily comes back on the monitor as two separate heartbeats. And then they bang on the thing and make it go away. So not sure what's up with that.
1: I loved that moment where the doctor's like, oh, man, this thing never works. And he just like hits it. <laughs> <laughs> just, just like any of us would.
0: <laughs> Following this, he goes back to work after he gets out of the hospital. At work, he casts doubt on a proposed merger with another company. And slowly we find out that people are telling him that he's said or done things that he has no recollection of.
1: Yes, and he's a little bit prickly with his wife, and she senses something is wrong. Or maybe he's just prickly about being reminded to fasten his (laughs) seatbelt. But she seems to be suggesting he's not quite himself either.
0: But he has no evidence that there's anything else going on. Although he does see the silver Lamborghini Islero parked across the street from his house.
1: Yes. And the wife can also see the car parked outside, which I have to say, having only the faintest idea what the film was about going into it, I was surprised that the wife could see the car just as a narrative choice. Immediately, like, if the wife can see the car, then that means it's real, And that this isn't just a psychological thriller like a a psycho scenario where someone has a split personality. It's a different version of that story.
0: Or is she seeing the rover and we're just seeing the rover as the Lamborghini?
1: Ah. Because
0: at this point in the movie, you do not see the rover and the Lamborghini at the same
1: time. I thought that the silver car is parked on the street and that the rover would have been parked on there. He usually parks the rover on their side of the street and we're seeing it on the other side, but that's an interesting theory.
0: Well, we know that they're not the same car later on, but I don't know about parking. The parking always screws me up because of the opposite side Side of the the street. Yeah. (laughs) Every time we see the car, we see the driver snaps a match, which is a. Personal habit that Mr. Pelham, the character that Roger Moore plays, has. So he's at least got this same habit.
1: It's shortly after this that they have this wonderfully, very frank conversation in the bedroom about why they as a married couple don't have sex anymore. It was real. I mean, just thinking of it as being in 1970, I can't remember another film where it has been talked about so baldly between a couple and like they're saying, well, maybe it's that we're older and she wants to have another baby and he's overworked. And it's just the conversation just goes on and on.
0: And I think this might be a British thing. It's really weird what they'll censor versus what the U.S. censors. Like in the U.S., any talk of sex would still have been completely unavoidable at this point. Yeah. On the podcast recently, we were talking about Quatermass films where there'll be a scene where someone's arm is half turned into a plant. Well, they can't show that. like. <laughs> um, so it's really strange. you know. And this isn't the only film from this period, the late 60s, early 70s in the UK, where sex is talked about frankly. I can't think of the name of another right now, but the talking about it they can do. There's other parts in this film that get a little more risque too. We'll talk about those in a moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, The Graduate came out in 1967. So, I mean, like, this isn't, like, crazy, but it just seemed, you know, compared to The Saint just a couple years earlier where, you know, they were really hesitant to show bodies. Like, you know, it it was pretty mild and buttoned up. Maybe it's the difference between television and film.
0: I think it's just something that was going on in the culture. Remember, there's the free love and everything going on right now. And so it like just invaded cinema at this point on both sides of the Atlantic. And that's part of what Austin Powers is like spoofing, you know. It's a good point. (laughs) Okay. So back to this. Pelham, when he gets to work, there's this discussion about a possible leak of this R&D project. They're in marine technology is what the company does. And there's a line here where they're discussing this, where Pelham says,
1: Come on, Charles, espionage isn't all James Bond and a Majesty secret service. Industry goes in for it, too, you know. <laughs> Did you catch that? No, well, I didn't write it down, but now that you mention it, yeah, it's a great line.
0: Now we've had a specific mention of James Bond, both in The Saint and <laughs> in this film, prior to Roger Moore actually becoming James Bond. So I thought that was really interesting. But also it's uh, an early mention of corporate espionage too. I've heard about like trade secrets being stolen and whatever, but I don't recall an earlier film referring to that as espionage. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) I do have to say this is coming out of the late 60s going into the early 70s. We have the 70s look already developing with the horrible green everything. Yes! Oh, my God. (laughs) That horrible, oh, my God, the 70s, which really, uh, you know, it started in the late 60s. But this, oh, the design, the horrible, horrible design choices. And
1: lots of wood paneling. (laughs) Yeah, wood paneling. Really unfortunate wood paneling.
0: This is another thing. Meanwhile, the other firm, the one that is, they believe, stole secrets, they believe they've bought off Pella. He goes to a billiards club where a co-worker claims he was there last Thursday while he believed he was in Spain at that time. So we never really get a good explanation about the Spain trip.
1: Yeah, I was trying to – like, weren't you just in the hospital? When were you supposed to have gone to Spain? Or was this a very short hospital visit despite a pretty serious accident? <laughs>
0: I have no idea. But last Thursday he squeezed in a trip to Spain. <laughs> Or maybe that was the hospital stay—was him being in Spain at the time. Mm. It's quite possible that he kept it secret from his coworkers. Yeah, I was in Spain at the time.
1: Yeah, although i I think the I think they know, but it must be that in in the timeline of the film, the hospital stay was like an overnight, like in and out. You know, that's insane. Just some quick flatlining, and then you're ready to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. But during this time, yeah, there's a a lot of stuff that's beginning to add up for Pelham about, you know, a friend shows up to dinner that he wasn't expecting and he's at a casino for a night out with the wife and runs into another woman who seems to know who he is and he doesn't recognize her at all. And this is going on simultaneously with the intrigue at work where... It seems like he's been participating in meetings or conversations that he doesn't remember at all.
0: Yeah, and several of the patrons at the Billiards Club also mentioned that having seen him. Oh, you were you're just here. Okay, let's set all that aside and talk about some of the personal stuff going on here. Not only are they not having sex, but we find out that his wife is putting pressure on him to have another baby. So there's that too. I only mention that because we're going to get into psychology here in a minute. Yes. <laughs> More people recognize him. He even shows up at the club and the doorman said he gave him his hat and cane about an hour ago.
1: Yes. This was another instance, like the car, where there was another physical hat and umbrella. And it, it was, you know, like, wait a minute, but if this were all in his head, there would still only be one hat and one umbrella. But um, instead there are two. Unless he has duplicates. Unless he has duplicates. It's not impossible, but it's just like this is not how this formula is usually done in these psychological thrillers.
0: No, it doesn't hit the cliches. There is a point where they address that where he has a, a necktie and collar. Yes. And he says, I only have one of these. But he finds this other one. So he thinks there's an imposter that has duplicates of his stuff.
1: He's now at this point starting to worry that maybe the car accident really rattled his brain, that he's possibly going crazy, and and that this is not his friends playing a trick on him anymore. This is something more serious.
0: Right. So he was at this pool, and he saw this photographer woman who he later finds out this is his secret mistress – Supposedly, (laughs) I don't know. Um, We have people taking photos of us. Um, Okay, Uh, so (laughs) this is very distracting. Um,
1: Are they students or? I don't
0: know who they are. Let's.
1: Should we let her in?
0: Hang on, yeah, let her in. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so we're recording in a studio, which is something we hit, we don't normally do on this podcast. This podcast started in the era of the lockdown, so we were all on Zoom. And uh, now we're actually in person, which means people can, can actually show up. <laughs> Not that we didn't get interrupted occasionally before. Like going all the way back to the very early days, I remember um, people's kids and – Stuff like that would come in.
1: Yeah, this is a whole whole new meaning to live guests, though.
0: (laughs) Okay. Back to where we are. He has the secret mistress. And then on the other side of things, on his work life, the board, they've eliminated all other possibilities. Either he's the one that's leaking these R&D secrets to the competition or he's correct. There's some doppelganger out there that looks just like him. So his friend convinces him that he needs to see a psychiatrist.
1: Who is exactly what you picture a psychiatrist of the 1970s to be. To a T. Like the guy was crackpot Freudian nonsense man.
0: Okay. Did you recognize him?
1: No, I didn't.
0: Okay, so this is Freddie Jones who played the psychiatrist, Dr. Harris, in this. We last saw him as Thuffer Hawat in the 1985
1: David Lynch Dune. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Of course. The
0: the scene makes me dizzy. He is walking (laughs) in circles around him, and the camera is following in circles, and he continues to spin him in circles. I have no idea why this was done. The camera's at an extremely low angle upward, and it's just... Oh, my God. I don't... They don't just do it. They do it around and around and around and around.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I can't tell whether the intent of the scene is to convince you that Pelham might be crazy or to convince you... He can't be crazy because the psychiatrist is the one who's crazy.
0: Yeah, he reminded me a little of, speaking of David Lynch, he reminded me a little of uh, Dr. Jacoby from uh, The the Twin Peaks. Yes, (laughs) yes. He's that kind of crazy character. After this dizzying scene, he goes back to the photographer's place because the psychiatrist has told him to indulge his repressed side. yes. Uh, he tries everything, and he goes out dancing with his wife. They ride home in this convertible.
1: Where did that come from?
0: Yeah, then they have sex. On the doctor's urging, he ditches the conventional collar he's been wearing and suit for a modern one. Again, the fashion oh. is just a nightmare in the 70s. Yeah,
1: like the, the beige
0: salmon colored tie oh, and God. like
1: <laughs> it's like salmon paisley. It's like so awful.
0: Oh man. So uh so he does all this and then he reads something at the office that he had typed up. It's called an ego ego, which I don't know what that stands for. Mm. But, but
1: you you think it is it is there as a as a psychology widget.
0: Yeah, but I'm guessing ego is actually stood for something in British business or whatever. I have no idea. It's an ego letter. It said that this other company's buyout had been accepted. And they had offered him a job as the managing director. He calls home and someone that claims to be Pelham answers the phone. So now he finally knows exactly where that doppelganger is. Yes. And this is where we get into spoiler territory.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, pirate be warned. But first, did you recognize the butler in his house?
0: I don't think I did.
1: So the butler, uh, Luigi, is played by Kevork Malikian, who played Kazim in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the leader of the Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword. Uh Ah,
0: it's been a long time, so yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised I didn't recognize that.
1: Yeah, Butler's not a major character, but it's interesting just sort of, he ends up being an intermediary for some of these. As soon as Pelham, Pelham number one, Pelham, Pelham zero, what the original Pelham, who, how are we going to distinguish these well, guys? Well, <laughs> I don't
0: know that we can. The film leaves it ambiguous to the point where I actually thought perhaps the storyline shifted who it was following.
1: Hmm.
0: He rushes home in the rain and when he gets there, he comes face to face with himself, someone that looks exactly like himself. And there's this confrontation, his doppelganger or the real him or whoever is dressed the way he used to dress and points out like the way that he's dressed. Have you ever seen me dress like that? You know, stuff like that. So everybody believes that he is the doppelganger. He is the double and that the person we've been led to believe is the double is the real Pelham. This leads to a chase. And this is where we find out that, in fact, the Rover and the Lamborghini are two different cars, not one superimposed over the other.
1: Yes. I will say I assumed that whichever Pelham is driving the silver car is the evil Spock with a goatee Pelham. But
0: I don't know. I don't know. I, this, this one's a, a real ambiguous film. It does not give you easy answers.
1: I, I like your interpretation. I like, I like this idea that, that it could have switched because the Pelham with the salmon-colored tie is unhinged in a way that we don't see regular tie Pelham behaving.
0: Yes, it's true. This leads to a chase, a car chase, and eventually, the character we've been led to believe is the protagonist goes off the road into a river and presumably dies. And the duplicate Pelham is now the real Pelham or whatever continues living Pelham's life.:
1: There's a, I mean, the moment on the bridge, though, when it looks like he's having a heart attack, and we get the two heartbeats. Back so well done. There's a moment where I thought the second Pelham was also going to die, like a neither can live, while the other survives kind of thing.
0: And the car chase too. We should mention it's a really long chase, and there's psychedelic lights going on, and he's oh, looking in the so rearview 70s. mirror. So
1: seventies. Like,
0: <laughs> it was very strange, but also there's a real question of what's going on here. It's reminiscent of. Easy Rider, actually, that toward the end when they're like in the graveyard in Easy Rider and stuff like that. All the stuff in New Orleans in Easy Rider, it's like that. It's very disorienting and you don't know what's going on. And is this real or not real? It reminded
1: me of Vertigo a lot too. And not just because of the whole double doppelganger thing.
0: Yes. Okay. Overall reactions. What did you think of the film?
1: I really liked it. I. It was, you know, I mean, Roger Moore said it himself. It's It was great to see him act in something and being a character other than just being handsome and effortlessly charming. But the scene where he breaks down because he doesn't remember sleeping with the mistress, like doesn't remember it at all. I mean, he's really crying and falling apart. And it was a totally different Roger Moore than you've seen in anything up till now. And really, really a great performance.
0: I think it was great. I I loved it. Everything about this film, it's not something I'd watch over and over again, and I would not give it an A. I'd give it, like, about a B. But um, the only thing I didn't like was the horrible 70s design of everything, and what can you do? It's the 70s. Even he, Roger Moore has a 70s
1: porn stash in this. <laughs> like, oh, my God. I can't believe we got this far without mentioning the mustache.
0: <laughs> um, so, but but – even with that, he still looks, I mean, he can pull it off a little better than most people could, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, but it does give him more of a buttoned up, like, you know, very suburban. And there's a great line where the wife, when they go to the casino and she wants to gamble and he's like, oh, that's not really for us. And she says, anything to stop us from being so bloody suburban. <laughs> and he, yeah, it's it's interesting seeing Roger Moore playing that, even if the fashion is Rather unfortunate.
0: Yeah. So this this is the post-war period where I think we talked about in our Mass series. Uh, because of the Blitz, a ton of the population was moved out into the suburbs, and so I think that there's sort of a you know, suburban claustrophobic revolutionary road kind of a mm-hmm. thing going on here.
1: Yeah, and you know it's the Shrink's diagnosis of it's all sexual repression that's caused this is amusing. But actually, what I like about the film is that it doesn't really fully endorse any particular kind of diagnosis of why this double has come into being. And you do have to suspend your disbelief a little bit about the metaphysics of all of this. It's not like Psycho where it's all in his head. There is something else that happened. And I like that the film doesn't to really explain that. It just lets it be fantasy.
0: Yeah, it's definitely worth seeing. It's a little bit like Seconds. It's just kind of a movie that does not tie everything up with a bow for you. It's definitely leaves a lot up to interpretation.
1: And I think it's one of the reasons why the film ultimately does succeed at being suspenseful, thrilling, a little bit unsettling is because it's not as tidy as it could have been. And so for a film made in the 70s, you know, compared to something like Memento or or another more modern uh, psychological thriller, like, it's great that you can't get to the end of the film and be like, well, now I have an explanation or now I understand what's wrong with this person. Like, you don't. And instead, it kind of leaves you just a little unsettled. Like, I don't know, we could develop a doppelganger, like, out of nowhere. (laughs) Just like, just happen to us. Check it out. It's on Canopy now, but probably findable elsewhere in the future.
0: All right. We release every date with an 8th, the 8th, the 18th, and the 28th of each month. If you want to reach us, you can uh, message us by email at gc8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number 8, podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric.
1: This is Johanna.
0: Signing off.